Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Nora Hawkins, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. It's my privilege to be speaking with Mark Kreswick this morning. Mr. Kreswick is the Eastern Region Deputy Director of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign, a national effort to transition the electrical sector off of coal power. He was previously an associate representative on the Corporate Accountability and Finance team. His work with the Sierra Club began as a local organizer for the Beyond Coal Campaign in Iowa. In Iowa, he also served as acting director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, an organization of people from Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and other faiths, all collaborating to tackle the problem of climate change. Mr. Kreswick graduated from the University of Iowa. Mark, thank you for taking the time to share your insights and expertise with us today. I want to start to ask, start by asking you a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in clean energy policy and advocacy? Well, first, thank you very much, Nora. I'm delighted to be here. So like many college students uh, a number of years ago, I started out headed toward healthcare. Um, and as I learned and uh, learned more about our health problems, I discovered that many of our health problems in the United States and internationally are caused and fundamentally at their core are about pollution, are about institutional problems like poverty, lack of basic access to clean water and clean air. And so I started focusing on um, those problems uh, rather than just treating the symptoms. Um, so really getting to the core root of our problem. Um, and I realized that climate disruption in particular um, is, has the potential to be perhaps the greatest public health threat we've ever faced. And so I started uh, advocating for uh, clean air, clean water, and clean energy um, when I was a college student lobbying the state legislature on energy efficiency and green buildings. Um, and by the time I uh, graduated from college, I was helping organize uh, a local community in opposition to a proposed coal plant in Waterloo, Iowa. Great. That sounds fascinating. And from there, it sounds like you went on to work um, with Iowa Interfaith Power and Light. It, it seems lately that faith groups and congregations have taken considerable initiative on climate action and clean ed- energy advocacy. What were some of the projects you initiated at Iowa Interfaith Power and Light? And what do you feel are some of the strengths faith-based organizations have to offer when it comes to environmental advocacy more broadly? I first got involved in Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, uh, thanks in part to Reverend, Reverend Benjamin Webb and Sarah Webb, his wife, uh, who I met actually while organizing uh, with the community fighting that proposed coal plant. Um, and I know both myself and Ben were actually inspired in many ways by John Grimm and Mary Evelyn Tucker right here at Yale. Um, but uh, one of the um, things that uh, Iowa Interfaith Power and Light did, actually Sarah Webb uh, created a program. She was concerned about uh, health uh, asthma problems with her children and some of her neighbors' children uh, at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Um, and they were uh, involved in fighting the proposed coal plant and decided they want to do something in their home with their family uh, to fight against those pollution problems. Uh, and so Sarah and her neighbors started a program called Cool Congregations, where they were actually measuring their impact and their family's impact on climate disruption and carbon pollution uh, and finding ways to reduce it. Um, So that Cool Congregations program from uh, St. Luke's uh, in Cedar Falls is now spread across the country, and it's been the Interfaith Power and Light Network, all 39 state affiliates, including the uh, Interreligious Eco-Justice Network right here in Connecticut that have been running that program. And so I was very happy to help Sarah uh, create the program and uh, support her in expanding it. Yeah, it sounds like a really inspiring story. 
Um, how, how did the political climate in Iowa on clean energy issues compare with how your current Beyond Coal efforts are perceived on the East Coast? What type of messaging strategies do you employ in these different regions? I'm very proud of my home state of Iowa. Um, a lot of people don't realize that Iowa actually gets over 25% of its power from wind um, at different points throughout the year. Uh, and with that comes money for farmers when they put wind turbines up on their land, thousands of jobs in uh, manufacturing wind turbine components. When the Whirlpool uh, Corporation bought the Maytag Corporation, who makes dishwashers, um, they actually shut down the headquarters of Maytag in Newton, Iowa. Over 800 people lost their jobs that day. Um, and it was actually wind turbine component manufacturing in Newton, Iowa, uh, that brought a couple hundred jobs back to that community to enable it to keep going um, and keep prospering. That's just one of the many benefits of wind power in Iowa. It's kept electric rates low. Uh, Mid-American hasn't significantly raised their electric rates in uh, nearly a decade. And in part, they attribute that to the incredible amount of wind power they've put onto the system. It's helped uh, attract companies like Google, who just built a new data center and chose Iowa for one of their new data centers. Data centers use an enormous amount of power, and they chose Iowa because of wind and low rates. Um, so, you know, it's owners and, and investors like Warren Buffett, you know, probably our nation's greatest investor and the owner of Mid-American Power Company, uh, they love wind power for a reason. Right. And so I'm actually really glad that uh, New England and Connecticut actually just signed contracts uh, for New England wind power and are going to get some of those same benefits. And it's actually states like New York, um, who had, with New York has the greatest potential for wind power of any of the northeastern states. But Governor Cuomo isn't delivering on uh, clean energy promises to his state and needs to. But Connecticut and Massachusetts are going to be benefiting from New England wind power the same way that Iowa has. It's great to hear. Uh, what was your greatest victory as a community organizer in the Midwest, either with Iowa Interfaith Power and Light or with the Sierra Club? I'm still most proud of uh, probably the first two major campaigns I ran, fighting that proposed coal plant in Waterloo and a similar one in Marshalltown, Iowa. I mean, it's uh, the incredible people I got to meet along the way um, who were the core of that power. Um, it was folks like Don and Linda Schatzer, Gail Mueller, Carrie Lesseur, uh, ben and Sarah, all of whom have uh, continued to go on. Some of them were appointed to county boards. Uh, so they're all still working on uh, clean energy issues in Iowa. Um, I was just privileged and delighted to know them. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you the full story of Merle Bell, this 80-year-old farmer um, who had lived and his family had farmed the same plot of land for over 100 years. Um, and all he wanted to do was keep living there, give that land to his children and his grandchildren, um, but the company that was proposing the new coal plant was coercing him, cajoled him, actually got him to sell an option on his land at one point. Um, and all he wanted to do was live there, and he's still living there today. Um, so it's uh, that kind of work. You know, community organizing is about uh, helping people develop and build relationships, help them realize their own power and develop, help them develop their own power um, so that they can deliver real tangible benefits to their families and their communities. That's what our organizers do every day, and I'm just privileged and delighted to be able to work with them and support them in that great work. Well, it sounds like from community organizing, you went to a slightly different role. What was your role as an associate representative for corporate accountability and finance, and what are the main aims of this group at the Sierra Club? Well, one of the things uh, I worked on in that role was uh, cutting off um, new money, convincing uh, investors, banks, credit raging agencies that uh, putting money into new coal plants was a bad and risky investment. Um, 
you know, so we spent some great time with folks like David Schlissel, who's now at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and Tom Sanzillo, who's the former first deputy comptroller for the state of New York, talking to these banks um, and credit rating agencies um, and telling them they're going to lose money if they bet on new coal. And we were right. A company called Dynagy, which was building at one time more new coal plants than any other uh, company in the country, went bankrupt just two years ago. Um, and so we actually gained a lot of credibility uh, with some of the people we've been talking to for years when that happened. They're like, well, you're, you're right. Um, so now most of our work actually on corporate accountability um, and uh, financial work is international. Um, and just recently in the last few days, you've seen the World Bank, United States, other major financial players say, we're not going to fund new coal plants internationally either. Um, and that's thanks to the great work of uh, Justin Gui, who's our, uh, one of our international financial rep representatives, as well as uh, the Bank Information Center, groups like Rainforest Action Network, all working together to make that happen. That's great to hear. How much of the corporate accountability and finance team work, work um, focuses on convincing companies to terminate their investment in fossil fuels versus advocating for specific renewable energy or energy efficiency projects where this money might be instead put? Yeah. We didn't work a lot on specific renewable energy projects, but the Sierra Club actually has partnerships uh, with energy efficiency and renewable energy companies through our Clean Tech Advisory Council. Um, and we've actually been working with companies to even uh, help our own members uh, go solar, to really walk the walk that they're uh, talking every day. Um, and it's companies like Sungevity and Sunrun and Solar City um, that are demonstrating to investors that uh, solar power is here, it's affordable, it's reliable, and it can deliver real benefits and returns for investors. You know, it doesn't take a, a Sierra Club corporate accountability person to make it clear that those companies are succeeding and earning returns. Any savvy investor uh, can see that. Unfortunately, many of our uh, nation's electric companies um, haven't quite figured that out yet. You know, they've been monopolies for so long, uh, they're not innovative anymore, and they're spending more of their time uh, fighting the growth of energy efficiency and demand response and rooftop solar than they are actually figuring out how to profit from it. And that needs to change. We need those companies to sit down with regulators and advocates to figure out how they, can too, can benefit uh, from rooftop solar, uh, just like Sunrun, Sungevity, and Solar City, and other companies. Definitely. Well, in targeting individual CEOs, shareholders, or a member of a board of directors, how did you balance holding these individuals responsible for their company's contributions to climate change with alienating them? Were there instances in which former targets actually ended up being allies of your work? Well, the uh, current executive director of the Sierra Club, Mike Brune, when he worked at Rainforest Action Network on corporate accountability, had a saying, which is, you need to be hard on the issues, but soft on the people. We really take that to heart. I mean, the people uh, who are running these companies and working at these companies, they're trying to support their families. They're trying to keep workers employed. They're trying to deliver a good product, uh, and they're trying to earn money for their investors. None of those things is a bad thing, and none of those things is incompatible with cleaner air, cleaner water, and a safe climate. So we spend most of our time trying to make it clear and help those people understand that those things are not incompatible. You can have both, and in fact, we need both. Um, you know, and it's, uh, you know, we're making some progress. I think the CEO of NRG, which actually owns a lot of the um, power plants here in Connecticut, David Crane, uh, has made a lot of progress. One of his staff members, Steve Cornelli, they're trying to figure out how to do the right thing. They're not there yet, um, but I'll give them a little bit of credit for trying. That's great. Um, well, in our last issue that I wanted to bring up in this first segment of our conversation today, I wanted to turn to the topic of divestment. Divestment's really become a buzzword in the climate 
conversation lately. Um, and around the country, more families are beginning to divest from fossil fuels in their own stock portfolios. And then there are numerous student groups that are also working to compel their colleges and universities to invest their endowment from fossil fuels. In fact, Yale is going to be running a divestment referendum among their undergraduate student body in just a few weeks. What are your thoughts on these efforts? And in particular, um, some have been critical and even dismissive about the ability of small investors to have an impact on multi-million dollar companies. Is it more effective for shareholders to give their proxies to environmental organizations so these groups can attend annual shareholder meetings and lobby on their behalf? Well, divestment campaigns have proven to be an invaluable tool in really helping people understand the role of financial institutions in financing and spurring climate disruption. Um, but divestment is only one tool. Uh, that we need to use to solve the problem. Climate disruption is so comprehensive, we have to change so many different uh, aspects of our energy system and our financial system. And I hope that the students who are engaged in that important effort on divestment are asking other questions as well. Is Yale currently powering our buildings with 100% wind and solar? Are our buildings as energy efficient as they can possibly be? What about that coal plant right down the road in Bridgeport, Connecticut, the last coal plant in the state of Connecticut? What about an oil plant right here in New Haven? What are your elected officials doing to solve those problems? At the end of the day, Yale divesting from fossil fuels would be a great message, and it would send a message to those same elected officials. But making Connecticut and all of New England the next coal-free zone like the Pacific Northwest has become, or getting more clean energy on the grid, can do so much more, and it's just as important. So Yale should divest from the fossil fuels, absolutely 100%. But none of the students who are engaged in that campaign should quit there. Together, we can do so much more than just divest from fossil fuels. We can end the dominance of fossil fuels altogether. Those are really critical questions to keep in mind. Thanks so much for your time today, Mark. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to talking with you again shortly in our second installment. Thank you, Nora. I look forward to it.